Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll visit the strange sights of the city of Wilkesbury during an annual ghost tour. We'll learn about an alternative idea on handling the opioid crisis from a pro-cannabis advocate. And we'll hear from the author of a new book that reveals the secret story of the women who broke enemy codes of World War II while living under the radar in Washington, D.C. It is that time of year again when ghost stories abound. In a city as old as Wilkes-Barre, it's only supernatural that there are some horrendous happenings of the past that have been retold through generations. And these tales are repeated each October when the Luzerne County Historical Society hosts its wildly popular ghost walk. Facilitated by the family of society member William Lewis, these tours reveal where the bodies were buried, the bloody battles that took place alongside the Susquehanna River, and the ghostly encounters some have experienced in buildings on the campus of Wilkes University. Our guide for the tour was Laura Lewis. Well, the tours began in 2004, and I've been one of the tour guides ever since. A lot of family pressure, obviously, from my brother, but this is such a wonderful, wonderful way to learn a little bit about the early history of the Wilkes-Barre area in general and, you know, from the times of the Native American settlements through to well into the early and mid-20th century. And we show the uh, people on the tour all sorts of places that they probably don't even notice on a daily basis. The the wonderful homes, the different parts of the Wilkes campus, the downtown businesses that they may not even be aware of their history. And it's just a very exciting thing for me because I love this area so much that, uh, you know, it just resonates with so many of the people that come on the tours because they learn a little bit more about the wonderful heritage that we have here. Due to the crowd size, Lewis used a headset joking she looked like Madonna as she prepared her audience for the horrors to come. Good evening. Welcome to our Murder, Mayhem, and History Tour. It is a chilling tour, although the the weather doesn't seem that way. It's a chilling tour of downtown Wilkes-Barre. Be very aware of the traffic because they will run you over, as we we added a few ghosts just a few hours ago, uh, so we'll see. But we're going to be visiting the places where there were horrifying murders. We'll be visiting lost cemeteries. And yes, not all of them reburied their dead when they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. We will walk on battlefields that were 
actually right here in the downtown. We'll be seeing where gruesome executions took place right in the city. You're going to hear stories. You're going to hear um, folk tales. You're going to hear a lot about a very scary period in the history of this valley, um, which continues to today. Um, if you walked around any city, though, that was this old and had been inhabited first by Native Americans for centuries and centuries, and a modern settlement, modern if you will, that has been in place for over 200 years, you would have um, very interesting stories. If you wonder why um, there's many creepy stories, make sure you understand that Timothy Pickering, who founded the county in 1786, was a native of Salem, Massachusetts. So, in fact, his grandfather was a town councilman at the time of the witch trials. So it explains a lot about Luzerne County, in my opinion. Lewis started her tour at the Oosterhout Library and went on to discuss St. Stephen's Episcopal Church, both on Franklin Street in the city's downtown. That library opened in 1889, and Melvin Dewey was there to dedicate the library. Have you ever heard of the Dewey Decimal System? That was the man. He was here, dedicated the library. Now, the doors are kept locked, obviously, at this hour, and the alarm is on, and that prevents us from actually going physically into the library. However, um, if we did, we would probably encounter the ghost that haunts the book stacks on the other side of the building. The ghost has been seen by many, many people, including uh, a good friend of my brother's. And by the way, uh, we're standing on a former cemetery. If you went to the Historical Society Museum, you were also standing on another cemetery. That was the cemetery of the old First Presbyterian Church. There had been a, uh, a wooden church that that brick building replaced. And an early pastor of the First Presbyterian Church noted in his diary every time he buried one of his children behind that building that that certain pastor, he and his wife had nine children, seven of whom they buried under that macadam. Behind us, this entire St. Stephen's Episcopalian Church, some of the most famous early settlers were buried here. Captain Samuel Bowman, Bowman's Creek, Bowman Street, a lot of the, the local areas named after him. He was buried here in 1818. Hannah McClintock was laid to rest in 1833. Many, many others. And the parish building directly behind me was built in 1878 on top of where the earliest graves were. And after the church <coughs> moved all those graves to other cemeteries, <coughs> so they said, they weren't that careful because in 1897, they found more graves and headstones. The year we started this tour, in 2004, they had just excavated a portion of their sub-basement and found more graves and more markers. Wilkes-Barre's Public Square has always been a gathering hub for city residents, as well as the site of a storied church and a home of the Luzerne County Courthouse, according to Lewis. You're standing right where the old ship Zion Church once stood. Uh, and that's the bell, that's truly the bell, that hung in the steeple of the church that was here. In fact, there's a, there's a little picture engraved of the church on the other side of the monument. It wasn't 
completed until 1812, but the construction started in 1801, and there were a lot of starts and stops with the construction because they kept running out of money. It was a congregational-slash-Presbyterian-slash-Methodist church. It was, it was a good thing that the church was completed because they had a church sexton by the name of John Miller, and he was a very inventive man. It was Miller who came up with a remedy to break the spell of the local witches that lived in Wilkes-Barre. And the witches apparently were very good at vexing the local cows. And you know what a cow is when it's vexed. They don't produce milk, right? So Miller would tell his, the people of the church in the valley to bring their cows to him. And he would take the key from the church, put it in the cow's mouth, turn the key three times, and speak spell-breaking words, known only to him. And then, of course, the cows were cured. And it left the citizens, as well as the cows of the valley, very happy. Besides the church here, the old county courthouse was here. And the last one stood here until 1908. All of these buildings around the square, a lot of them are relatively new from uh, post-Flood of Agnes, 1972. But the former Pomeroy's building, which is over there behind you, the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce is in right now, that corner building that looks, you know, like an, an older architectural, uh, in, architecturally interesting building, that had a community room for decades that was open for all kinds of functions, including public seances. That was very popular in downtown Wilkes-Barre for whatever reason. Harry Houdini, the magician, was a regular performer in Wilkes-Barre, and it is said that he attended some of the seances over there in the building. The city limits of Wilkes-Barre used to end where Washington Street is today. Lewis explained that City Hall isn't the only place full of skeletons, so was the ground underneath the property. Like any other community, the city of Wilkes-Barre at the time needed a cemetery. And in 1773, the six-year-old son of Zebulon Butler was the first person to be buried across the street, right where City Hall sits right now. His burial was followed by more than 1,800 others who found their final resting place uh, where the basement of City Hall is right now. Now, those graves obviously took up a lot of space, so it, it spanned that whole block. And in 1869, the city opened the Wilkes-Barre City Cemetery that's up by the General Hospital, and by 1871, the city started to remove graves. And they, they uh, dug them up and took them up to where the Wilkes-Barre City Cemetery is now. However, the removal of graves wasn't a very pleasant task, apparently. There was a woman in town um, by the name of Edith Brower who grew up in the 1800s here, and she wrote a little tiny book called Little Wilkes-Barre As I Knew It. Her father exhumed the graves and was in charge of the removal of her entire family. Several strange tales were told to her by her father about the condition of some of those bodies. One of her little cousins, who had died at the age of two, when they opened his uh, coffin, they found that his, his uh, hair had grown more than a foot. And they opened um, the coffin of one of her uncles 
and they found his hair going through the cracks of the coffin. So she was convinced that being buried made your hair grow and suggested that to several other of her living relatives. It did not go over well. But um, she also uh, was told by her father that they had a great deal of difficulty down a little bit further because the bodies had become petrified in the soil. The bodies, they were pulling up and it was very difficult to do so because they were so heavy, had been petrified. So it was not a very pleasant job, as you can imagine, and we can only hope that they were thorough, but of course they weren't. In 1933, workmen were digging a foundation for the building at 15 North Washington, and they unearthed bones of a person that had been buried at that spot after the 1972 flood here, when they were building the new police station, which is right behind City Hall, there were rumors of old graves being uncovered during the uh, excavations. Somebody said, oh, there's probably Native American burial grounds. No, it was the old city cemetery. If you look behind you, this was the site of the Luzerne County Jail. The original jail was right across the street. It was here that prisoners were held and executed. Right behind the facade of that building, you would find the yard where public hangings were held. And actually, public hangings were quite the rage in the 1800s. Invitations were sent out to uh, pro you know, prominent individuals. And the whole town, it would become kind of like a, a carnival circus atmosphere. Imagine where the Genetti's Hotel is. There were homes and buildings on that side of the street, right across from the, the jail. And people would get up on their roofs and they would um, put, put up ladders against the homes so they could see the hangings in the yard. This Edith Brower, uh, who wrote the little book, said people came to town in droves to see the hangings, which took place in the old jail yard at the corner of Market in Washington. The stone wall did not discourage these eager folks who were no more bloodthirsty than I was. She suffered nearly indescribable sensations of envy when she saw more fortunate children whose parents thought hangings were proper spectacles for anybody sitting enthroned upon the housetops where they could overlook the high stone wall. A stop at a home on Wilkes-Barre's Millionaire's Row along River Street featured details of a tragedy in the life of the Huber family that may have left some ghostly remnants. We're starting... Um, to look at some of the what were private homes on what is often referred to as Millionaire's Row. This is the home at one time of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Huber. Mr. Huber was the president of the Lehigh and Wilkes-Barre Coal Company, which later became the Glen Alden Coal Company, or Blue Coal, as some of you may recognize that name. And this home was built to serve as the residence of the coal company's president. Their headquarters was right next door. On June 12, 1923, Mrs. Huber was in the basement of this home. And she was supervising the family chauffeur, Oliver Gibbons, who was helping her wash out some quilts in the family's washing machine. And he had a great idea. He was going to use a gasoline mixture to uh, clean those quilts. However, the pilot light of the hot water heater was on in the same room. 
and it caused the gasoline to explode and Mrs. Huber and the chauffeur were set on fire. Now, Mrs. Huber ran through the home screaming until she reached the second floor, this front bedroom window, and her servants took off her flaming clothing. She suffered in agony until 8.45 that night when she died in this home. Mr. Gibbons was taken to the Wyoming Valley Homeopathic Hospital, which was just down the, the street, and he died at midnight. So the sad story of a great tragedy that took place in this home ends. Mr. Huber went on to have the Huber Breaker named after him in uh, Ashley. They just put up a historic monument there um, because of, of the interesting history that was uh, associated with that breaker. But does the tragedy really end? Well, for years, this was Chapman Hall of Wilkes College, now Wilkes University. And over the years, many of the women who lived in this, it was a women's dorm, complained of a weird feeling that they got on the first floor in the back rooms. And many absolutely refused to go near the basement, not because they knew the history of the home, it's just that they knew something here was wrong. Some even complained about hearing strange noises on the second floor. Now, it's been converted to an office building, obviously. Stories have been told about radios turning themselves on and off at night and flickering lights and strange noises. Is the building haunted? You need to be the judge of that, but I will tell you a personal story. My senior year at Coughlin High School, I thought, golly, do I want to go to Wilkes or do I want to go to Wilson College down in Chambersburg, PA? And I went on a Wilkes weekend, and part of that was you stay in a dormitory. And I stayed in Chapman Hall, and I did not sleep a wink. I kept complaining about the noise in the building. And the, the young women that uh, you know, had offered up their room, they said, you know, this is a fairly quiet building. We don't know what you're talking about. But I left the next morning, and I said to my parents when I arrived home, I said, I don't want to go to Wilkes. I'm going to go to Wilson. I graduated from Wilson College. What we found out just a few years ago is Mrs. Huber was a graduate of Wilson College. Was she the one that kept me up all night? You be the judge of that, too. It's hard to believe that a fight over an insect may have led to bloodshed on the River Common, but that's the story behind the Grasshopper War, according to Lewis. It's said that violence and warfare occur in virtually every society, and there was a lot of violence and bloodshed here in the valley long before the settlers arrived. Local Indian legends tell of how Shawanese women and children crossed over the river to this side to meet a party of Delaware women who were playing with their children. They had left their part of the valley to look for wild fruit that grew in this wilderness that was here. A Shawanese child was supposed to have caught a large grasshopper that one of the Delaware kids wanted. And the fight between the children turned into a fight among the women. And soon the male warriors got involved. Half of the Shawanese braves were killed right here, forcing the tribe to abandon this area completely to the Delaware tribe. And it became an event called the Grasshopper War. Now there's a lot of legends about the Grasshopper Wars because apparently it was a big deal to fight over grasshoppers at the time. Now the first settlers here had their own unique set of problems. As I mentioned before, we live in Pennsylvania, but in the 1700s, the English kings had made this part of Connecticut. And after the first settlers were killed and pushed back, 
A second group arrived, and that infuriated the Penn family, and they sent a sheriff to send those Yankees packing. That caused the Connecticut group to bring Connecticut militiamen here, and the Connecticut settlers established Fort Durkee, and the Pennsylvanians built Fort Wyoming, which is right behind you. So imagine, you could practically throw a rock at each other, and that was the intention. And they threw a lot of rocks at each other. Each group repeatedly forced the other to flee the area, leaving behind their homes and their crops. And in 1771, the troops in Fort Wyoming attacked Fort Durkee. Lives were lost. You're standing on the battlefield where many of those settlers were killed. The Connecticut forces besieged, in return, Fort Wyoming. And finally, the Pennsylvania forces left the area. That was called America's First Civil War. We call it the Yankee-Pennamite War, number one. They raged in battle. The only time they quit was when the American Revolution started. And they all fought against the British and the Tories. But the control of these lands started once the American Revolution was over, and finally, it was the 1790s when the dispute was finally settled, and well into the early 1800s before all the land grants were settled, and we became not Connecticut, but part of Pennsylvania. There's much more to this ghostly tour, so check it out next year, if you dare. Follow the Luzerne County Historical Society on Facebook. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Pennsylvania's opioid problem has been labeled a public health and safety crisis. Statistics show an average of 13 people die each day from overdoses in the state, with 2017 also expected to be a grim year. Opioids were identified in at least 85 percent of all those who died from drug-related overdose deaths in the state, according to a report done by the DEA of Philadelphia and the University of Pittsburgh. In Colorado, it's a much different picture. Opioid-related deaths have dropped since cannabis was legalized in 2012, according to a study published by the American Public Health Association. Joe Schrank, founder and program director of the group High Sobriety, joined us to discuss his belief that cannabis can save lives. Well, look, there there is no lethal dose of cannabis. So first and foremost, one of our goals at high sobriety is to take death off the table. There is no recovery uh, with dead bodies, right? I think we can all agree on that. Dead is dead. The current paradigm of residential treatment, you know, go to rehab for 30 days and be indoctrinated into 12-step philosophy and so on and so forth is successful 5 to 8% of the time. So my question is not how can we talk about it, how can't we talk about it? States with medicinally dispensed cannabis have 25% fewer overdose deaths than states that don't. That's without education, that's without doctors, that's without naming opiate dependence as a qualifying condition for a medical program. We could increase that number even more. The question is not, is it effective? It is for some people. This is not a solution to the opiate crisis. It is an aid. It also may be a stepping stone for some people to cessation of all drug use. So, you know, we're not looking to say that we've solved this. We're looking to say that this could be a tremendous help. And really what it is is a cultural question. Why do we care if people smoke cannabis? What is it about the stuff that is so, that just doesn't sit well with a large percentage of the population? 
situation. Well, I know in Pennsylvania, a long time ago, it was totally legal to yeah. uh, grow cannabis, smoke cannabis, whatever. And then I guess in post, after the end of prohibition, it, it became illegal. Uh, do you ever do research into the, the thoughts behind why certain things are legal and why certain things are frowned upon? Well, look, you're talking to a Brooklyn liberal. Mm. So um, the reason I think that they have criminalized drug use is because they don't like the people who use that particular substance. So in other words, if I didn't like English people, what, what, how could we disrupt their lives? We could make tea illegal and we could you know, put all this crazy stuff. Tea leads to heroin and tea leads to death and you're a bad person. Good people don't drink tea, so on and so forth, which is absurd. Um, the Nixon administration really went full throttle with demonizing and criminalizing cannabis use. And the reason was, and it's even been stated by people who were there for the Nixon administration, Nixon didn't like hippies and he didn't like black people. And the way that he wanted to disrupt their momentum with anti-war protests, with cultural change was that. You know, that's a big giant roadblock. The truth is, if we look at this <clears throat> logically, and I'm not sure logic ever really applies to drug policy, but it could, we should be encouraging people to use cannabis as a form of intoxication if they are going to use a form of intoxication. It's safer. Um, it does not have the collateral damage that alcohol does. We're talking about the opiate crisis, which kills 60,000 people a year roughly we don't exactly have the numbers for 2016 but it's looking like it's going to be about that alcohol has killed 88,000 Americans a year for decades so the idea that you can go to Costco and get a bottle of vodka for $20 but if you smoke a joint you're a criminal is ridiculous it should be exactly the opposite because there isn't any sort of death and and I know people have all these anecdotal examples of their nephew that went crazy after they smoked a joint or, you know, those are very, very few and far between. For the most part, adults who are fully formed in a controlled environment are perfectly safe using cannabis. That's not true of alcohol. And so I think that it's much more of a cultural war that we're fighting. And we're asking people to think about drug use and drug policy in a very different way. We, our drug policy in America is failed by any metric. Um, the metric that I use, you know, what has it done to families? What has it done to the prison population? You know, all those, all those kinds of things are, are shameful, but we just shouldn't, we shouldn't consider this to be a success and we have to look at this differently. Addiction professionals, Joe, who are in our region don't really have anything nice to say about a full scale, uh, legalization of marijuana. They just they just don't. They believe it um if I'm remembering what they've said in the past properly. Uh they believe that it is um a, another thing that becomes either a habit or an addiction. Um and I know that some people say there's there's marijuana is not addictive and they've always indicated that they don't feel that anything will be solved by uh, opening the floodgates to drugs further. Mm -hmm. What say you, Joe? That's crazy. Those people should read research. Those people should look to scholarly knowledge building, peer-reviewed research. It does change something. It changes death, for one. <laughs> like, I don't understand. How is that not improvement? I think that those types of people who they're rooted in an evangelical belief in 12-step philosophy. 
that's wonderful for them the same way that evangelical christians tell hindus they're going to hell because they don't love jesus it's not so different to tell people well if you're not totally abstinent if you don't do what i did you are on the road to hell it's important to understand and it's important to draw the distinction between dependence and uh, addiction so addiction there is no diagnosis without impairment and the impairment has to be determined by the individual so in other words people who say well gee i'd like to go to law school and i have this come up a lot where these young guys they get off heroin using cannabis and then they want something else in their life and the counsel may in fact be then the weed has to go too you know so part of it is a pacing um there are lots of people who say I like my life. I have a simple job. I come home and I get baked and mm-hmm. I'm stoned. Who are we to judge those people? I don't, you know, that they have failed or that their lives are wrong or that we have some sort of superior ability to correct them. People have the right to self-determine. So so people who, and, and look, the, the people who are opposed to legalization, there's a couple of silos of those. One are the Jeff Sessions of the world, right, and the governor of Kentucky, who lords over the fattest state, the most welfare-dependent state, um, the poorest educated state, and somehow he feels the ability to judge people who use cannabis. The one thing that flourishes in Kentucky is bourbon. You know, this is the one, like, really? Are we, do we want to model our lives after Kentucky? You know, I don't think so. So um, anybody who drinks alcohol and tries to demonize cannabis is a hypocrite. There's just no other way to describe it. Let me uh, the, there are uh, old... yeah. Let me ask you about that though, because I think yeah. that's that's a fair point. In our culture, Joe, there are a lot of people who cannot really function very well at all, either because of an addiction to alcohol or a dependence. Well, let's just call it a, a just to be fair here, a dependence on cannabis. There seems to be a desire yeah. in this con- in this country to live your life in an altered state because reality is so ridiculously difficult. And a lot of people who don't smoke pot or drink look and and shake their heads and go, guys, we got a real world out here. And a lot of you are not employable Mm -hmm. because you're addled all the time. How do you address that? Acceptance. There are people who are, have mental health challenges and there are people that will fall to addiction or dependence to the point where they don't function in the world. What I think is not that we shouldn't make efforts towards improving that, but that we need to apply the knowledge, values, and skills of public health policy, not criminalization. So in other words, making those people who have the inability to function in the world because of a dependence on a substance criminals doesn't really help anybody. It makes the problem worse. And so I'm not saying, look, don't do anything about it. I'm saying, are people who smoke cannabis, is it crime? I mean, whatever it is, maybe it's a bad decision. You know, Americans make a lot of bad health decisions. I'm not sure if you've ever seen people at McDonald's. Uh, It's not the best health decision. I'm almost 50. I ate a chili dog at 7-Eleven. That was a really bad health decision. So I think it's more of an issue of how do we approach this in a better way for a better outcome? And part of it is that there, are, there will never be a drug-free America. Like that is just pure fantasy. And the idea that there are people out there who are playing into this fantasy and who think that through incarceration or 
um, uh, you know, these paramilitary organizations that somehow there's going to be a drug-free America. It will never happen. And so that's got to be given over to, okay, swing and a miss for 50 years. It went nowhere. It hurt families. It hurt communities. Let's try something different. So my interest, and I guess ironically or not, I don't know, um, I am a substance-free individual. You know, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. I don't use cannabis. I don't consume it. Um, and that's a decision that I made and that I've stuck with. But that may or may not be the right decision for all people. We have to look at other options. We also have to give people time to reach that if that's what they decide is going to be their best play to address a drug issue. We spent, so, yeah, but Joe, we spent a long time in this country talking about how bad smoking cigarettes is. And when a lot uh-huh. of us never thought we'd see the day when there was a, a smoke-free bar or whatever. And you know what? Uh-huh. It happened here. And in a city like New York, they are very strident on that one indeed. And for a very, you know, kind of liberal city, it's amazing to see that they are uh, leaders in this. So uh, Bob Marley, yeah. who was a musician and smoked a lot of uh, uh, marijuana, when he was being treated at Sloan in New York City, they said that they had never seen an individual so filled with cancer yet still alive as Bob Marley. What do you uh-huh. think about that argument? <laughs> I mean, I'm just throwing these things out here. Well, for look, you I to- think that smoking, the reason that the, the rates of smoking have declined in New York City is taxation. Cigarettes are like $20 or something in New York. Um, so that was one of the ways that they reduced the rates of smoking. What they didn't do was arrest people or shoot them for using nicotine. So, so part of it is just a cultural trend, a general uh, trend of health, messaging, you know, and it took a very long time to move the culture into that whole idea that smoking, you know, it wasn't that in the 60s or in the 50s, they didn't understand that smoking was bad. You know, they did, and they started to clue into that thing. And one of the ways I think we can reduce the rate of use is the same. Take those people down Tobacco Road. Start with the distilled spirits lobby. You people, they, they kill 80,000 people a year. Why aren't they being uh, in core? Why isn't there a warning label on alcohol? Like, this product can result in death, certainly can result in stupidity, violence between partners. There's a million things that can go wrong. And part of the way that they've hijacked is that message, don't drink and drive. You know, as if driving is the only thing that can go wrong with alcohol use. So what I think is that it really was public health policy and public health officials that reduced the rates of smoking, not only in New York, but nationally. And ironically, people, like the people that you were describing who are so opposed to the legalization of cannabis, a lot of those people in AA are dying of emphysema and lung cancer. So I just, I don't get the moral posturing. That's Joe Schrank, founder and program director of High Society, a group that encourages minimal choices for those who reject the idea of total abstinence from drugs. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Women did many things during World War II to contribute to the U.S. victory, including acting as single parents, working in airplane factories and on assembly lines, and managing victory gardens. A new book sheds light on another way women worked under the radar to help the war effort. Many were recruited from colleges and universities covertly to serve as enemy code breakers 
in secret facilities in our nation's capital. A new book, Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II by author Liza Mundy, details their extraordinary mission. I was talking with some historians at the NSA. That's our national security agency, which actually grew out of our incredibly important wartime code breaking. And they told me about this incredible story of more than 10,000 women who were secretly recruited to come to Washington, where they formed the bulk of our code breaking force. So it's sort of like the people at NASA who knew all along about the hidden figures, the women mathematicians in the space race, and it, it really took an author who um, wanted to write the story. And, and the minute I heard about this, I wanted to write the story. 10,000 women working in secret. I have to know, Liza, how did they manage to pull this off? I, I know some of them came out of uh, colleges and universities and other places. What, what did they say they were doing? Well, that's a great question. Because they were women, they were better able to keep the secret because they were told to tell people that they were secretaries, that that they emptied waste baskets and sharpened pencils and filled inkwells. And because they were women, people believed them. Even though they were graduates of, you know, of top women's colleges and, and other universities, they, uh, people just assumed that because they were women, the work that they were doing couldn't be important. No one in their family caught on because we all know about women's intuition. And I was wondering if someone's mother or grandmother said, hey, that doesn't sound like you. Well, people in their families did pump them for information. And several of the women I interviewed would talk about, they were based in Washington, but if they went to have meals with relatives or something, uh, they would get pumped for information. You know, what are you doing in that huge secret compound in Washington, D.C.? But the women, they they knew that they couldn't tell because if you're breaking codes and the enemy finds out that you've broken their code, then the enemy is going to change that code system and it's all going to go dark. So they knew it was really important to keep the secret. How did that recruit? take place? Who went out to uh, find these women across the country? And how did they even approach them? Because that's sort of cloak and dagger as well. That's a fascinating story. The U.S. Navy asked uh, professors at women's colleges to identify their top seniors, women with with a background in math and languages, if possible. And these women received secret invitations to a meeting where they were asked, do you like crossword puzzles and are you engaged to be married? If they said, yes, to the first and no to the second. They would be invited to take a training course during their senior year, and then immediately when they graduated, they came to Washington. The U.S. Army, meanwhile, was competing for educated women because it had its own code-breaking operation, and it sent handsome young Army officers throughout the South to station themselves in post offices and hotels and uh, and try specifically to recruit school teachers because school teachers were generally college-educated women, and they were trying in part to charm them into coming up to Washington. How did that crossword puzzle situation fall into what is code breaking and maybe lay down the foundation for what that exactly meant during World War II times? Yes, and incidentally, code breaking is much, much harder than uh, than working crossword puzzles. Uh, crossword puzzles are designed ultimately to be solved, and they have, you know, little clues and things like that. But codes, coded messages are designed never to be broken, and so it's very difficult. And World War, World War II was a war of signal communications. Because armies and navies were spread out all over the world, there were thousands of messages being sent every day uh, by commanders to their troops, to their ships, 
diplomats, politicians, all communicating over the radio waves using enciphered communications. So this was really the dawn of encryption. And what these women were doing was basically hacking. They were hacking into enemy communication systems. What kind of uh, skills did they did they bring? Because, Liza, a lot of people listening today don't remember life without the Internet. They just simply don't remember those times. But this was terribly challenging and I guess they used to you know whatever uh, kind of skill set that they had but uh, how exactly did they implement it Uh, did they use each other or did they use uh, military input how'd they do it So messages were intercepted at listening posts around the world. They were sent to these two giant code-breaking compounds in Washington, D.C. And the women, the the codes came in different systems. Often they were numerical codes in which a word like maru, which was the Japanese word for their supply ships, it would be rendered in a four-digit code group, maybe six, seven, eight, nine. But then there would be another four digits added to that to encrypt it basically. So the women had to strip out the encryption. They had to do a complicated uh, kind of math. But then they had to have the language skills to be able to figure out where in the message certain words might be appearing. And that's just one kind of uh, kind of code breaking. Uh, there were other messages that were done by machines that would scramble letters. And in those cases, the women had to understand the behavior of letters in different languages, uh, which also involved math and language skills. And they did it as a giant assembly line working collaboratively doing what basically what a computer would now be doing when you were looking at these uh, examples yourself did you get any kind of skill out of this were you able to crack any of them (laughs) that's a great question you know some of their training courses actually still exist in the national archives so i was able to look at some of the problem sets that they had to answer every week when they would do their training and i i felt like i understood the principles involved just as i've expressed them to you and sometimes i would think okay well i'm going to set about trying to do some of these problems because i understand these principles and i would look at them and i would think you know what Nah, I've got to do something else. Now, of course, we have young women doing this in uh, Washington, D.C., and certainly they didn't spend every minute in that building. What was it like for them? I mean, uh, I guess off the clock, so to speak. Did they have a lot of downtime? Did they... Uh, Were they able to intermingle with the other people who were there? Did uh, they find uh, relationships in D.C.? That's a great question. It was a great experience for them, and that's one of the ironies. Obviously, they were very stressed by their work. It was a 24-hour operation, so they were working round-the-clock shifts. They were very worried about their brothers and their boyfriends and their friends and, and men they knew who were in the fighting. They understood what the stakes were, so the work was very stressful. But when they were off the clock in Washington, they had a great time. Time. And they lived in boarding houses, apartments, group homes, uh, dormitories that were created. They did a lot of dating. They wrote a lot of soldiers. Uh, sometimes they were writing as many as 12 men at a time because women were encouraged to keep up morale. <laughs> they were sending a lot of snapshots to uh, to these soldiers, which were sort of an early version of selfies. And they were, you know, they were drinking. There was one group of women who had a pact that if somebody at the table ordered a vodka 
Collins, it meant that somebody was showing too much interest in their work and they were all to disperse to the ladies' room and then leave. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And it was the, the Collins that was the, the tip-off point. That it, was their code word, if you will. Yeah, so they were using code outside the office, which yes. I think is awesome. And by the way, I think, Liza, as we all will know, people still use that kind of uh, code today today yep. to get uh, people off their backs in a bar. Exactly. So that's exactly. good. Yep. Now, um, some of these women are still living, and uh, there is one in particular, a lady named Dot Braden, who sometimes speaks with you about this book, right? Oh, uh, yes. She and I are good friends. I, I talked to her last night. She's she's 97. Uh, she still remembers being a young school teacher in Chatham, Virginia, overwhelmed by her teaching load after all the male teachers had gone to fight, and, uh, and, and entering the post office in her hometown of Lynchburg, where there was a government recruiter recruiting for a job in Washington. She applied. Uh, her background was thoroughly checked, and she took the train to Washington, having no idea what she had just signed up to. To do and within a matter of weeks she was working on the code breaking system that was responsible for sipping for for sinking thousands of japanese supply ships in the pacific in weeks that's an amazing set of circumstances <laughs> uh, i mean how does she feel about this pivot in her life where she just goes to the post office and all of a sudden she's sinking ships yeah, I mean, she says that it was the greatest experience of her life. Of course, she could never talk about it even afterwards. Her family at a certain point, you know, had some inkling that their mother had played an important role in the war. They knew their father had been an Army meteorologist uh, predicting weather for pilots, but they didn't know what their mother had done, and they were very, very eager to to listen to this story. So I think she's uh, she was reluctant at first to talk because she took the oath of secrecy very seriously that she had to sign. But once she understood that it was okay to talk, I think like the other women, she is very eager to get credit for what she did, and understandably so. How about some of the other women who are, are still with us? Uh, what, what is it like to speak to them, and, and did you really have to coax them because of that oath? Yes, in some cases I really did have to coax them, and it was incredibly moving to talk to these women. I mean, many of them now are living in assisted living facilities, but it was remarkable what they remembered and how sharp they are. One of the women was able to actually show me the math that she did. She still remembered uh, how she decrypted the Japanese naval messages. She still remembered certain words and phrases they were looking for. There was a word called a shogoichi message, which was a message in which a ship would announce what its new position was going to be the next day. And those were incredibly important because American submarine commanders could then position themselves to be where that ship was going to be. And she still remembered what a Shogoichi message was. Have these women, uh, Liza, ever been brought together for any kind of honor? Not that they would want one, but have they been recognized for their extraordinary service? I think they might want one, although it would be difficult now at this point, you know, physically for some of them. Um, they really haven't haven't been gathered and honored that way. They did receive commendations after the war. The women with the Navy uh, received medals, but they were told never to show them to anybody. And, and so they didn't. And in fact, you know, a number of women still have them, and some of them were reluctant to even show them to me. Did you, you, so you did get to see the medal. Were you allowed to photograph any of the medals? Uh, no, that, that's the, the one woman who finally showed me her medal wouldn't let me photograph it. But I do have the letters of commendation. And in the National Archives, I can see that there were women with this operation who were nominated for Bronze Stars. That is fantastic. Now, you did reference a movie that I, I enjoyed ever so much called Hidden Figures. I thought that, the, I, I hardly ever go to the movies, but I was drawn to that. 
and I thought to myself, this story is so fascinating, and I'm glad it was told. Is there a potential that your work in this book might translate into the big screen? And, and by the way, I, it, it's a great story, and I know a lot of people would love to see it. Uh, so thank you so much for saying that, and I would say yes. I think there is a very good chance that it'll be translated onto either the big screen or the small screen. And um, and I'm very grateful to Hidden Figures to the movie because I think I think there is a receptiveness now uh, among the reading public and the viewing public to really believe that these stories are true and that these women really did contribute, um, and that it's it's important to recognize their work. That's Liza Mundy, author of Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.